This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Smith. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Bruce Miller about his latest book, Uplift, How to Harness the Hidden Engine of Continuous Renewal, published this year by Miller E-Media. After studying filmmaking and screenwriting at UCLA, Bruce Miller has spent his career as a brand strategist, media producer, writer, and marketing partner in an Atlanta brand development agency. In the 1970s, Bruce's spiritual search led him to English author, performer, and teacher Rashad Field, the journey described in his new book, Uplift. Bruce and Rashad, with others, started the Institute for Conscious Life, the Mevlana Foundation, and later Chalice Guild. In these schools, Bruce helped bring the work of Halaluddin Rumi to America, now considered the best-selling poet in the U.S. This story is recounted in Bruce's second book, Rumi Comes to America. Bruce also collaborated on and edited Steps to Freedom, Discourses on the Essential Knowledge of the Heart, based on the talks given by Rashad Field. Bruce's residential seminars on Sapello Island in Georgia and Mendocino, California, on the knowledge of the octave and enneagram, ideas brought forth by P.D. Ospensky and G. I. Gurdjieff, in the law of hazard and understanding of risk and uncertainty from the work of J.G. Bennett. Bruce's first book, Fortune, Our Deep Dive into the Mysteries of Love, Healing, and Success, explored the karmic mystery of why stuff happens. Bruce has also written business books. Brand Story, How to Position Your Shoestring Startup Like a National Brand, draws on his decades-long professional career. He also co-authored Seven Superpowers, a parenting guide by Dr. Maria Gilmore. Bruce is an avid sailor, yoga enthusiast, and has taught the turn of the whirling dervishes. His wife, Karen, is an ordained minister and chaplain educator. Bruce Miller, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you for having me. This is exciting for me. This is my initial foray into being a, a podcast guest. So Excellent. Yeah, All right. I'm losing my podcast virginity in, in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I don't think we've ever had a guest uh, uh, frame it quite that way before. <laughs> so, um, so that's uh, a form of virginity on our side, I suppose. <laughs> but let me, uh, uh, let me begin by asking our uh, usual first question to a first-time guest, and that is to invite you to cast your mind uh, back into memory to younger uh, times in your life. I'm talking about childhood and, uh, and youth. And um, the subject, subjects of your book touch on spiritual practice. I'm going to invite you to, in memory, consider whether there was um, one or many uh, moments when looking back now, you could say, ah, that prefigured the direction that my life was going to take, or that prefigured an interest in 
engagement with spiritual practice. So you are invited. Thank you for that. Uh, there's a moment that um, looms large, and even today I can't uh, put my hands around it, but I was like three or four years old laying in bed, you know, in that sort of uh, space before you doze off into sleep. And uh, I had this um, frightful experience, actually, as I remember it. I was trying to, f- all of a sudden the world didn't make sense, okay? And I was trying to figure out where are we? Um, cause I had, you know, this basic sense of, you know, we're on planet earth, which is in a solar system, which is in outer space. And I kept trying to figure out, well, what's outside of that? And what is outside of that? Where, where is this exactly? And, um, and that there's this whole melodrama going on of people, you know, concerned about money and politics and family squabbles and all the, the, the melodrama of life. But but where is this? And I, it doesn't make any sense to you. But I remember, you know, getting out of bed, you know, and going to, to my mother and and saying, you know, I couldn't explain that I was having this problem with space and time. <laughs> so I just said, Mom, I can't sleep. Uh, and she says, well, it's OK if you don't sleep. It's OK just to rest. And so I went back to bed and I went right to sleep. And my mother, who is a, uh, was a lifelong insomniac, you know, was never able to heed those instructions, but I've never had a problem with insomnia uh, since then. Um, but that when I think of that moment of feeling sort of displaced in space and time in the world, uh, it's obviously that there was some uh, deeper sensitivity that I had to life. And so can I jump forward a, a couple more events? Please yeah. do. Um, so the next key event, and, uh, you know, my life question has always been much more surrounded uh, with uh, the dramatic nature of life um, and just the orchestration of events, you know, it creates this bigger story. And so, I, um, and you probably also remember the day that Kennedy was shot. And it, I, I, I do, Stuart can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can if I put my mind to it. Okay. <laughs> but there was this uh, collective sense of grief that was palpable, you know. And I don't know. Uh, the last time I uh, felt something that was collective uh, was on March 11th two years ago, the day that COVID swallowed everything. And I was in a grocery store and people were just like frantic, but um, this, it was this palpable sense of collective grief. It really touched me uh, that we were all experiencing this together. Um, Then I'm going to flash forward a little bit more. And it was 1965 and I was 14 years old uh, at Comiskey park in Chicago. One of you's from Chicago. That's me. There you go. And um, so I had my $2.50 ticket to see the Beatles uh, in Community Park. And so, you know, the stands were full. And there was this roar um, of, you know, female fan crazed energy that was beyond, you know, people cheering for a band. Um, There was really this sense of a wave uh, coming in almost from another cosmos. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced. Um, so 
obviously the 60s are beginning to come in and I'm going to be lifted by that wave. Uh, and then I'm going to flash forward again to 1969. And we had graduated from high school and me and two of my uh, high school buddies, uh, we got it in a car and we drove across the midsection of upstate New York on our way to Woodstock. And, and what was amazing, still looking at the frame of this, these kind of collective historical momentum. Um, so here's half a million people converging on some random dairy farm pasture hillside in the middle of Bethel, New York. Uh, and there was no internet, no fax, no email, no social media. You know, so how did these people? Um, and, and I remember just the sense of being drawn, this river of humanity, you know, that there was some lodestone of love. Something was pulling us all there. Um, and it was not easy to get to. And so, and whatever they say about Woodstock, um, three days of peace, music, and love, it was really three days, you know, of mud, urine, and rain. <laughs> you know, it was, uh, it was a very difficult situation and just being crammed shoulder to shoulder as far as the eye could see with humanity sitting in the mud. And there was a gentleman who was the impresario on the stage, Wavy Gravy. Um, you may know Wavy Gravy. And he was up there and he's reading this bulletin, you know, from the AP, you know, saying that Governor Rockefeller, you know, just declared Woodstock a disaster area, you know, and then he threw in his little coda. You know, you know what I always say, there's always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. And that was a, a profound experience for me because all of a sudden, instead of, you know, the urine and the discomfort, I was able to, we could say, transform the experience into a little bit of heaven. And that was a, a key moment for me in that way. Uh, and I got two more. Um, so then I settled off to the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. And uh, it was a time of great tumult where we had National Guards and troops and violence. And, um, and I remember being in the middle of all this anger, you know, as the troops and the state police were facing off against the students. And something in me got very still uh, in the middle of this. And, and I realized that I wasn't angry. Uh, and I was just observing how each side was, in a sense, creating the other, you know, in this intense opposition. And it, it reminded me of the, you know, the Bhagavad Gita story of Arjuna in the battlefield, you know, finding himself in this still place. Um, and then the final story is really the one that uh, put me on a spiritual search and uh, so I had moved from Illinois to Los Angeles to go to film school and leaving all this incredible cosmic circus party atmosphere behind. It was a very creative time to live uh, with my parents um, in, in Malibu. And so I was very lonely and very depressed. And so I put on my headphones one day and there is Ramdas, who had just returned from India, being interviewed. And you know, he's basically saying, you know, whatever trip you're on, it's all in your head. And I was on a heavy trip. And 
it really captured something for me. And so I started reading the book like many people from cover to cover. You get to the end and you start over again and read it from the beginning. Be here now. Be here now, you're referring to. Be here now. Thank you very much. Um, And so there was this 16-year-old kid who sort of roamed the neighborhood. We called him the spiritual sadhu of Malibu. (laughs) And he walked around with a a bag of rotten fruit and a book, you know, from uh, the sayings of... um, Vivekananda, and he's uh, and I'm sitting on my little puja setup I created in the garage, and he looked at me and he said, "Well, have you had the experiences that he's talking about?" And I said, "Well, not directly, you know. I sort of intuit intuit what he's talking about." He says, "Well, you need to try some organic mescaline," <laughs> and so. All my friends, you know, back in Illinois, they had, you know, they'd be tripping, you know, they'd be having experiences with music and blessed out. And I was always more the chaperone, you know, on those adventures. Uh, I never actually took the plunge. And so I had this sense, well, I guess I better get this over with. <laughs> so um, we drove up to Ray's Peak uh, above Ojai, and you have to fast. Uh, with mescaline. Um, and so we did that and woke up in the morning and I, I took the, the, the mescaline and I didn't know what to expect. You know, I had seen all my friends, you know, getting trippy and blissed out and raving at the, the sights before their eyes. And I had a completely different experience. Uh, it was as if the bottom of my existential existence just completely fell out. And, um, and so, I don't know if you ever saw the the movie Resurrection with Ellen Burstyn, but there's a near-death experience in this movie where you go through the tunnel of light. So, I went through the tunnel of light and um, sort of awoke outside of space and time, <clears throat> call it eternity. And my memory of that was eternity is like a really, really long time. I mean, it's like really long. And um, and so hanging in eternity without any guideposts of physical universe, it was very challenging. And I just kept saying, let go, let go, let go. But what came from me from that um, were two um, sort of revelations. Um, one, that I will have to dedicate my life um, to... Um, penetrating the appearance of this world. Once you've been given a taste, like the Wizard of Oz, where you see that there's the humbug and the curtain falls, and you know that it's not what you think it is. That was number one. And number two is, don't try that stunt again. <laughs> and I didn't. Um, so so those that's my sort of lead up, you know, to being thrust into the spiritual path, um, for what it's worth. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So, so I guess out of that, um, what, what did you do in order to like, how did you get engaged in a, uh, uh, path or a teacher or a community? What, what happened next with that experience? Did you, was it uh happenstance? Was it uh cosmic coincidence control? Uh, no, all, that's always the case. But so I was a, a film student at UCLA and I was walking to film class, um, and all of a sudden I saw 
this little handmade sign that said, um, uh, it said spiritual festival. Um, and so it was this hand scrawled taped on the wall. So I diverted my path, followed, and there was a guy playing a flute and someone else playing a tambourine. And I said, well, you know, this is <laughs> not really what I would call a festival. Uh, and I felt a little disappointed. I was about to continue on my way to class. And all of a sudden, the guy put down the flute and said, is there anyone here who is interested in cosmic consciousness? If you are, Mr. Maury Berman would like to speak to you. And so I had just had this experience on the top of Ray's Peak in, um, near Ojai. And I was referring to this as cosmic consciousness, my experience. So I like, okay, I guess here I am. <laughs> and so this old Jewish man from the old country, um, he got up from his seat and approached me. And he said, you are the one we have been looking for. <laughs> you know, and his sidekick with the flute, he says, can you do four o'clock on Thursday? <laughs> and... I said, oh, I really don't know what this is about, you know, and they're just scribbling out the address and they're handing it to me. Um, so, uh, so obviously, four o'clock on Thursday, I met Mr. Amori Berman in his apartment in Santa Monica. It was a very Spartan place. He was a fruitarian and he had been a rabble rouser his whole life, you know, with the Babus and union organizing and all this kind of stuff. And he had become a fruitarian with a, a cosmic consciousness of his own. And there was never any contract or explanation of what was going on. I just would show up every Thursday at four o'clock. I take him to the drugstore. We drive down to the fruit market, you know, things like that. Um, and he would just tell me stories. And I didn't realize it at the time, but he was really teaching me the path of service to not have any expectation of reward that you're going to get some kind of knowledge from this. And um, one day, four o'clock, there's a knock on the door and no one answered. So I got very alarmed. So I went and found the Armenian landlady and I said, Mr. Berman, Mr. Berman, I think there might be some trouble. And, um, and she said, um, you know, okay, okay. And she pulled out her key and she opened the door and disappeared. And so I opened the door, and Maury is laying there in Shavasana pose, um, except which is the corpse pose, except he was doing it perfectly. You know, in the perfect Shavasana, you know, obviously you're dead. And, <laughs> and so I didn't know the protocol, you know, for your dead yoga teacher. Uh, so I sat there for a long time. Uh, and eventually I figured, well, I guess I need to cover him up. And then I said, well, here I am, you know, with a dead body in an apartment, you know, so I called the police and they come in and all of a sudden it just becomes this macabre scene, you know, with the forensic team, the flash cameras, you know, and the whole thing. And eventually they left. Um, and then the funeral director came and they took the body away. And so I took all of Maury's um, Khalil Gibran books. I felt you know, he would have liked me to have those. So that was, so that was um, my introduction to having a teacher. I've had three teachers in my life. So Maury was number one. Um, and I've had a teacher continuously my whole life, and I'm almost 72. Um, 
So the second teacher was Rashad Field. Can I tell this story? Mm-hmm. Um, Surely it takes more than one story. <laughs> <laughs> I will just tell you um, how I met him. Um, mm-hmm. So, so I'm in this in-between space, you know, chasing around spiritual experiences. And I was really upset with the fact of how spirituality uh, had this whole level of narcissism to it. You know, people were seeking this kind of experience. And so, and I had gone to something called a sattva, where we chanted Hare Krishna um, for, I think it was four hours. Um, And then it was over, and I remember saying, well, that was a waste of time. (laughs) And so, on the way out, there was a flyer that said, the reappearance of the Christ, uh, Rashad Field Ambassador Hotel. December 27th, and I was living in Malibu, and uh, the Ambassador Hotel is in downtown Los Angeles, so that's a that's a big journey. So, well, if I happen to be in downtown Los Angeles, I'll go check this out. So that day, I got a call from my mother, Bruce, can you come down and take some photos in downtown Los Angeles? And that event ended, you know, just before Rashad was to speak, and... Uh, and Rashad was there speaking about the reappearance of the Christ. And it was a very elevated discussion about building a platform for the second cycle of mankind. I had no idea what that meant, but I intuited that this platform was really sort of a base of awakened people, that a degree of consciousness, when held by many people, actually allows sort of the world to come to manifest. And that was sort of the dream of the new age. And at the end of it, he said, um, I'm willing to come back and start a school. Uh, you can sign up on the dotted line on a piece of paper over there, which I did. And from that, um, just this ragtag group of people got together. You know, there was no Zillow, but we found this um, uh, small mansion in the Wilshire district um, and we rented it. And Rashad came, we started the Institute for Conscious Life, um, and which was a, a play on Gurdjieff's Institute for the Harmonious Development of Man. You know, so it had all that pressure cooker uh, quality to it. And so that's where I got uh, initially cooked. <laughs> and, and that was, uh, that cycle lasted a number of years, right? Um, I'm just interested to, before we go into any detail about that, uh, then out of that, how did the third teacher appear? So uh, the Institute for Conscious Life was only supposed to be 40 days. And then Rashad renewed it for another 40 days. Obviously, he liked the setup, um, being in this mansion. It's all these people working around the clock. And uh, at a certain point, we got kicked out by the city um, because we were operating essentially a school in a residential neighborhood. And so, um, so uh, everybody dispersed and there's some people who said, we want to be as far away from Rashad as possible. And they, it was a sort of a working class communist leaning guy from Berkeley. He wanted just to live a socially conscious life, forget the spirituality. And so they rented a duplex in Silver Lake. 
And meanwhile, Rashad was living on the Sunset Strip with a new baby. And this duplex was owned by our Armenian couple. And the second half of the duplex became available. And all of a sudden, Rashad and young family moved into the second half, <laughs> where the people who didn't want to be around Rashad were. And from there, we invited uh, Suleiman Dede, uh, who was the sheikh of the uh, Nevlevi, um, to Los Angeles. And that's the, the subject of my book, um, Rumi Comes to America. Right. So were you in uh, uh, residing with the, uh, work, the working class socialist from Berkeley? Um, when this was all happening? Uh, so I was not part of that team, but as soon as Rashad moved in, everybody came back. We took up places in the neighborhood. I lived in the garage. And um, so I'll just tell you how Suleiman Dede came. But it's important to know who he was. Um, so when Suleiman Dede was 15 years old, living in Konya, Turkey, which is the center of Rumi's life, and... There was a mausoleum, the Durga. It's like the the monastery of the Mevlevi, of the followers of Rumi, where they would practice the turn. They learn about astrology. They do all the things. They had something called a Chile, which was a thousand and one day training. And um, and so when he was eighteen years old, he entered the monastery, as it were. And when he was twenty one, there was an enormous shock. And that shock was uh, Kamal Ataturk, who had just come back from World War I uh, and was obviously impressed by the ways of Europe. And Turkey at that time was a caliphate. And we know this words come back into our language from ISIS and all that. We're establishing a caliphate. Well, Turkey was a caliphate. And, uh, and Ataturk, um, I, who returned triumphant, he wanted to remake Turkish society in a secular, modern way. So he established the modern Republic of Turkey that we know today. And um, among the various things he enacted um, was he wanted to do away with all of the Sufi religion and paraphernalia. And so that's something we read in the history books and say, oh, that's interesting. But imagine if... Joe Biden or somebody said, well, you know, these Christian churches, they've really become corrupt. You know, they're just infused with money and politics and they're abusing their tax status and they're, you know, teaching all sorts of strange and alien thoughts that aren't helpful to building a constructive society. So we're going to cancel Christian culture. You know, we're shutting down all the churches, um, et cetera. I mean, that's huge. You know, uh, but that's what happened. So um, so if you were a practicing Sufi, you had to go underground. And so uh, Suleiman Dede, he was 21 years old when this happened. So obviously it had a profound shock um, and impact in his life. So um, Ataturk said, well, you know, you can use this wonderful uh, mausoleum, this mosque, uh, as a soup kitchen. You can feed the poor. So Suleiman Dede um, became a cook, uh, and that's what he did for uh, most of his adult life. Um, and 
in the meantime, you know, they would practice their Sufi practices pretty much underground. You know, they'd be in someone's living room, in an attic, whatever. And, you know, the wearing of Turkish garb, Turkish tie, uh, I mean, um, Sufi garb, Sufi titles, practicing the turn of the dervishes, all that stuff was verboten. And so, um, in 1953, they said, okay, you can do this once a year just as a cultural presentation. And then from that, it grew and it's become, it's still a cultural presentation. But at the time, the, uh, the keepers of Rumi's line, and it's passed on in the family line. So, if your father was Rumi, then you pass it on to your son, who passes it on to his son. So, and that family is called the Chelebi. And so, when Ataturk came to town, or, or or canceled Sufi culture, they fled to Aleppo, Syria, and they pretty much said to Sulaimandetti, "Here, you be the keeper of the flame here, you know, sort of like the unofficial mayor of Konya." And so, so he really kept Rumi alive in his heart. Um, for all those decades. And so now I'm going to jump back to the Silver Lake story. So Rashad Field, uh, he wrote a wildly famous book at the time, The Last Barrier. It was one of the harbinger books of the New Age. And it told his story of traveling to Turkey, um, where he met the dervishes, and his teacher at the time put him up to this task to sit in front of Rumi's mausoleum and just pray, be in vigil, you know, for 24 hours, uh, knowing it was wildly illegal to do any kinds of spiritual practices because Ataturk turned the thing into a museum. And so the guards came up, you know, and they started hassling Rashad, and he says, I don't know what to do. So he just kept trying to pray and to meditate. And and they're just screaming at him in Turkish. And finally, he just felt a little tap on his shoulder. And this man, who's now like 70 years old, Suleiman Bede, you know, smiles. And he says all the right words to the guards, and everyone's happy again. And so that story is in Rashad's book. So Rashad was writing a second book, and he invited us into his office in the Silver Lake duplex. And he says... Uh, we have an opportunity to invite this old Turkish man, Sheikh Suleimandete, to Los Angeles. Mind you, he's never been to America. He doesn't speak English. Um, and I didn't know who this man was. And I, you know, page to the book, oh, my God, it's that guy. So uh, he came to Silver Lake. And this uh, experience is recounted in my book, of he had up his sleeve um, the intention to bring the line of Rumi to America because it had been suppressed in Turkey and it was time, 700 years exactly after Rumi's death, for Rumi to flourish again. And so uh, he initiated people. We staged the first presentation of the turn of the whirling dervishes with men and women turning. And there was really a sense that if you believe in esoteric transmissions, that that seed was planted. The energy of that moment launched Rumi. 
And the only thing I have to go on that it was a real thing is about, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks later, a young Coleman Barks, you know who Coleman Barks is? Yeah. Uh, so here's this Tennessee boy who's a, a teacher at University of Georgia, and he's a poet. And so he was invited by Robert Bly um, to come up to Maine, where Bly is giving this conference. And at one point in the conference, Robert Bly hands Coleman this sheaf of papers, which were um, Rumi poems, uh, probably translations by Nicholson. And he said, here, take these. See if you can release them from their cages. It's the famous line. Coleman had never heard of the word Rumi his whole life. Um, so he took them back to Athens, Georgia. And every day after class, he'd go to the coffee shop and he started working with them. And he didn't have any permission, you know, to do one thing or another, but he, it, because he's a poet, he was doing his own uh, sort of contemporary stylings, um, which is the poetry of Rumi that, you know, some young yogini is going to read to you in a yoga class. It's coming from Coleman and it's been Americanized. So the way my mind works is I see everything interconnected. Sumandetti, you know, says, I'm planting the seed. There's this profound experience, you know, just this house was filled with people and love and light. Next thing you know, we're doing the turn. Next thing you know, Coleman is translating Rumi. So, um, and so from that, you know, we packed up and we moved to Boulder, Colorado, where we created a Mevlevi Teke. And so we, it became our job at that point to put Rumi on the map. So. So then to continue Stuart's question, yes. uh, there was the third teacher. Tell us about that. So, um, Rashad, you know, became a spiritual figure in America. Um, and, uh, meanwhile, after Boulder, and he moves back to England, doesn't work out with his wife. He moves to Santa Cruz. And um, and eventually, and so he starts another school in Santa Cruz, which is where I met my beloved wife. And, and at a certain point, somebody in England, um, actually, I'm sorry, someone in Switzerland invites him to Europe. And so his career just takes off in Europe in ways that had never happened in the States. It became quite a phenomenon. Um, and he started a school called Johannesov. And that was uh, Rashad's dream, was always to have a, um, a residential school, you know, that had land and gardens and a 24-7 intensity of cooking with beautiful food. And there was a view of the Lake of Lucerne and the Alps. I mean, it was just incredible. And at this time, there was a man, um, Dr. Bhagwan Awatramani, who was an, uh, a medical doctor from India, who at a young age, um, he was experiencing all sorts of distress, and someone says, well, you need to learn to meditate. And uh, and he had a teacher, and he wasn't satisfied with it. And eventually, he was sent to another teacher who was from the tradition of Ramana Maharshi. 
And Ramana Maharshi in the sort of non-dual world has become a household name. Yeah. But, uh, according to Bhagwan, no one had ever even heard of Ramana Maharshi back then in India. He was not the celebrated saint. But he, so he was learning um, this tradition of meditation. And, um, and so it, um, he became increasingly steeped into it that that became his full-time work, even though he was a doctor. And he was a doctor in Bombay in a very poor section of, of town where almost like a refugee camp, people would line up uh, and he would see each patient for maybe two to three minutes. That's all he could afford because of the, and, and they paid just a few rupees, like 25 cents um, per patient. And, and he did that all day long. And he obviously had to see a lot of patients if you're making 25 cents per patient. And the way he described it was because of his meditative practice, he could stay present, uh, see what the person needed, you know, make the prescription, um, and move on to the next person uh, without losing energy. And so, um, and so he reached a point um, near the end of his medical career, which is a tradition within um, a traditional, say, Hindu practice, that you pack it up and, you know, you embark in the world to see where the path will take you. And so he had been um, invited by some people to come to Switzerland. And he famously went there and uh, he was going to lead them in meditation. And uh, and at the end of the meditation, it was like an hour meditation, he opened his eyes and the entire room had split. <laughs> Except for two people, you know. And so he asked them, uh, well, why, how come you're still here, you know? And they just said, well, we just felt we couldn't leave, just leave you empty. So they befriended him, and um, they invited him to go see this man, Rashad Field, who was going to be speaking in Yohannesov. And so uh, Bhagwan, you know, he tried to hide in the very back of the room, and Rashad was saying, was there anyone here who's new to, you know, this evening? And Bhagwan was just, you know, hunkering down, hunkering down, and so Rashad says, well, who's that in the back? Who's that in the back? So Bhagwan was brought up um, to up to the front of the room to the microphone. And he began, and Rashad invited him to speak. And it just sort of blew everyone away. Uh, so because Bhagwan is coming from a completely different point of view than Rashad. So the Sufi path, you've got 99 names, you've got all these great saints, you've got endless books and theology and paraphernalia and the turn and practices and all this. And Bhagwan's world is really just staying present in this question of who am I? You know, they call it uh, self-inquiry. You're just inquiring into your experience. That's That's the total practice. So at the time... I was um, back in Atlanta, and my wife and I were separated. Um, and I was living in this big empty house, quite forlorn. And and Karen was living down the street. And I get a phone call from Rashad. And the words out of Rashad was, Bruce, I fixed it for you. 
and I got in my you know eyes are starting to roll. You know, oh God, here we go. <laughs> and and he starts telling me about this man, um, Bhagwan Awatramani, and uh, and Bhagwan is coming to the states. And I told him all about you that you know you're my uh, longest served pupil in America, and he needs to visit you. And I said, okay. And meanwhile, I'm thinking, you know, I'm just trying to hang it, hang together here with my bachelor pad, guru not wanted. <laughs> um, but I said, okay. So I call up Karen and I said, Karen, um, Rashad called and he's sending a guru, you know, to visit, you know, and at this point, um, you know, I think Karen was ready to get back together. And so she says, I'm on it. So she comes over. She's working menu, flowers, the whole thing. And so uh, Bhagwan comes to our house. And I'm just sort of sitting there watching this whole thing with my arms crossed while he and Karen, you know, are really um, having a, a very deep connection. And they'd be going to movies every night for a scump, and they'd, and they'd sit in the car till. Um, late in the night talking about relationships and the difference of the kind of um, spiritual love and householder love and romantic love and all these questions that Karen had. And so uh, at the end of Bhagwan's stay, um, Karen motioned to me, like, you need to go talk to Bhagwan too. <laughs> so I trudged upstairs where he had set up two folding chairs in this room that was now emptied of furniture. And um, and I started telling him about my experience um, in being single. And he, and he pretty much said, um, you know, when you get married, um, you're married, you know, not only for your lifetime, but for lifetimes. Um, and that... And, and I real and we were not divorced at this point, you know. And I realize, I guess we're still married. And so it it's it doesn't sound very profound, but he really sort of created opened the space um, where um, the future could come in. And so so now I'm in this place with two teachers, you know, Rashad, you know, who I've been with for like twenty five thirty years you know, with all this drama and expectation and Bhagwan, where it's this, the complete opposite. There's no drama. There's no expectation. He's the easiest person I've ever hosted my whole life. And um, so for the next um, 10 years, you know, my loyalties are constantly, you know, in this kind of conflict, you know, between the two men. And so, uh, Right around uh, Y2K, uh, I hosted a residential retreat in Mendocino. And um, and the hallmark of things that I would do would always be to do it the opposite of Rashad. You know, whatever Rashad would do, I'd do the opposite. Just because I had that rebellious nature. And so uh, I thought it was a success. And so Rashad came to visit uh, me with his now um, fourth wife and to Decatur here in Atlanta. And he sat down uh, with me in a restaurant and he's saying, oh, that um, 
that residential seminar you did, that was a disaster. You know, here's why, blah, blah, blah. And then he put a little dot on a napkin and he said, you see what this is? This is the center. He said, okay. Then he drew another dot next to it and he says, you see what that is? That's another center. He says, you can't have two centers. There's only one center. And so at that moment, I really felt that um, uh, my aspiration to come into my own was actually being stifled by Rashad. And it didn't say in any way that I didn't love him, but his need to be in the spotlight, you know, was going to come into conflict with my own journey of finding myself. So uh, I did one more event with him, which was right after uh, 9-11. And the, uh, they had set this thing up at the Open Center in Soho before 9-11 happened. But it was now three weeks after 9-11. It was still on the calendar. And Rashad asked me to come up and introduce him, and I did. And, uh, and there was this palpable sense of shock not only in Manhattan, but in the room, because you can imagine, you know, the air was still acrid, you know, from the smoke and the dust. Every firehouse was like a shrine of pictures and missing family members and flowers. And it's just um, truly a a heightened sense of post-apocalyptic disaster. And so in this room, um, I hadn't prepared anything to say, and I, I did the best I could. And uh, Rashad started to speak, and he's a master at working a room um, because he's, you know, he's a performer. He sang with Dusty Springfield, for those people who don't know him. Uh, so he has this profound sense of energy and moving energy. But he was really, at that moment, he sort of misread the room. Uh, that he was doing his standard spiel, and it really upset me. And so that's when I decided to leave him. Um, And at that time, I was his representative uh, in America. And so I became um, completely sort of divorced from having any um, followers, people to write to, to talk to, was in any spiritual context. I had lost my platform completely. And so, and that was the case that it's been uh, for some time. Um, But in the meantime, uh, uh, Bhagwan would be coming once a year, twice a year, three times a year. And there was this other quality that was being steeped inside. Um, He calls it a mysterious energy because he doesn't want to give any labels to anything going on. And, and so, you know, there's this dissolving process, which anybody on a spiritual path would describe. And it's, it's continued from when I was 21 years old till today. Uh, I've mostly tried to fight it. (laughs) You know, my advice to your listeners would be get out, get out, get away from it. (laughs) It's a, (laughs) um, but, uh, but Bhagwan uh, would not even really give it much attention in me. You know, if I ask him, Bhagwan, I'm having this experience, he'd always say, you know, you're fine, you know. 
And because whatever it is, he'd always just say, you know, well, that's the mind, you know. Your experiences are in the mind. Your fears are in the mind. Your ideas are in the mind. So he doesn't give you a lot of rope um, to play with. I'm working with Bhagwan. So uh, I don't know if I've given uh, a good picture of the man, but... Uh, oh, well, I mean, I, I, I have a question. I, I was a little... Um lost when you said that uh, after this event in Soho uh, um, with Rashad, um, that you said, you know, you decided to break with him. And, the, and then you said you had no, no platform. I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure what you meant by that. Well, so Rashad was based in Europe and he had sort of given up on the States. So he said, here, Bruce, you can have the States. You'd be my representative in the States. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, helped to start some groups you know, and we had, you know, I'd be putting out weekly writings and we had been doing uh, these residential retreats. We did one on Sapelo Island, uh, two in Sapelo Island, one in Mendocino. So I was, um, had some kind of spiritual stature, um, which disappeared overnight. Uh, and that was a shock, you know. To just be nothing. I can, I can just tell you my my favorite uh, Jewish joke. So the about being nothing. So the the, the rabbi and the cantor um, were at the uh, at the dais at the front one afternoon, and the rabbi's going, "I'm nothing, I'm nothing," and then the cantor's going, "I'm nothing," you know. And all of a sudden, the shlemiel, the guy who's just sweeping up, he's coming in you know, with a big push broom. He's just going, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. And the rabbi turns to the cantor and says, look, look who thinks he's nothing. <laughs> 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 and so that's, uh, this thing of being nothing um, is, is something. <laughs> so, But it was disconcerting to be nothing, you know, when you have um, – some title and stature within a community. So, so that's because, uh, I mean, did you actually say to Rashad that I'm no longer going to work with you or under you or, or whatever, or is, or was that for some other reason? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how the, how the nothing came about. Well, uh, the nothing precisely. came because I, I formally divorced myself from his work, we remained friends to the end. I see. Okay, but um, okay, the function came to an end. All right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. So, so uh, one of the themes that I was interested in in this arc that you described is um, the role of experiences in the spiritual path, because um, in one sense. You, you mentioned early on that uh, uh, people get very attached to experiences and in some respects, you know, even an intensive pressure cooker kind of environment, uh, although it, it does a lot, one thing it sort of can do is uh, be a source of experiences. And you found your way to a teacher who seems to eschew experiences, or if it, or if you want to bring an experience and feel special because of it, uh, he deflates that. And so I'm, I'm interested in how you see it because even like in reading your books, there's uh, a lot of experiences that are described, um, 
and that's in a way the currency in which we narrate a tale about spiritual practice. Right. And yet you find yourself in this place where um, uh, uh, your current teacher is not particularly uh, interested in experience. So I'm, I'm, I'm just kind of inter- I'm interested in how you uh, thread that needle. Yeah, it's very hard to write about Bhagwan uh, just for that reason. So, you know, I'm a, a writer by profession, um, but writing my own books is something extracurricular. And so I set out uh, to write books that, you know, someone would be compelled to turn the page, you know, hmm. and which is not necessarily easy um, because you're writing about nothing. <laughs> So uh, Rashad and uh, Bhagwan were 180 degrees in that regard. So, you know, Rashad would pull out his guitar and he would sing, you know, these ballads and people would be weeping. Um, We would put on these impeccable events, you know, the turn of the whirling dervishes where there'd be lighting and sound and uh, presentations and um and then the turn. And so there was this sense of showmanship about everything that we did. And and the meals were impeccable. And the timing was impeccable. The cleanliness, you know, we're washing the walls with rose water. And so there's always this um, elevating life's experience to something so sublime and so refined, you know, this quality of the scent of the rose, you know, which is the, you could say, the essence of Sufism. And whereas with Bhagwan, um, you know, just forget all that, you know, all that paraphernalia. And and we're not here to have an experience. We're here, this, this thing called self-inquiry, which is really simply to bring your attention to the quality of your own experience ultimately to put your attention on the I, the I thought, the sensation of I, which is a, is a, it's a trick done with mirrors to be able to actually um, sense the quality of I. You know, well, it's with us when we woke up, we walked down the street, you were on the phone, we're upset, I, 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 but it, you can't really put your attention on it easily. But that is what the practice is, um, and to the point that you can keep going deeper and deeper with it. And in that sense of I, it, it loses its agency or its, its power or its, um, its compelling nature uh, as you do that. It loses its charge. And so it's a very simple practice, but it's difficult. So Bhagwan's role uh, is to bring this energy into the midst and there'd be anywhere from seven to 12 people, you know, working with Bhagwan in any given setting. And uh, we would sit, you know, for an hour and then he'd have a discourse for an hour and we'd sit for an hour and we would go on for five hours. And, and that would happen, you know, two or three times a year. And that was the total practice. And he, he didn't meet with people socially uh, except with me because I was the host and um, and he didn't really consider these uh, the people around him his students um, whereas with Rashad um, there was just this um, 
there's this this magnificent drama, <laughs> you know, about all of it. And it was it was exciting and infuriating, and you were pushed to do more than you could physically um, manage. You know, there was constantly a sense of pressure cooker around it. There's all sorts of people's you know egos getting um, bent out of shape. Uh, just, so there was this always high drama, and but so it's a different kind of fire. You know, they're both fire and different two different kinds of cauldrons. And so I guess I was ready, you know, for the second one after the first. So, so I'm, I'm interested to know whether um, you would say that Rashad, with all the drama that you, that you have, you know, described and the books you, you've written have described, whether you think he actually had the intention to create in the inner life of the people around him, the people he considered the students. Um, did he have, do you think, the intention to generate an inner life that could sustain the silence that would create the same basic product or results or direction, perhaps is a better word, the same direction ultimately as the non-dual teacher um, that you came to um, study with, or was it? Or do you think it that it was only drama? Uh, so I would categorically say that Rashad was a mystic, and the energy mm-hmm. that he carried uh, was palpable and real. Um, in terms of whether either of these teachers. Um, have the capacity of to uh, create uh, a, that kind of deepening in the student. Um, ultimately, it's it's up to the student, and and so I, you know, I really feel that um, you have to sort of almost like steal what you need from a teacher. You can't be dependent on a teacher. Sure, uh, but so, that does. But that doesn't mean that that, that the um, teacher can't have an intention, and that's kind of what I'm what I'm curious about here. Mm-hmm. So I think that there was a conflict with Rashad because uh, a he had this absolute natural talent that went back to him being a child. Um, he told this story where was a gameskeeper, and he was brought up on an aristocratic estate in England and uh, the games, the gamekeeper had him catch a rabbit in his bare hands. And Rashad did, you know, and, you know, he said, you don't uh, try to catch the rabbit. You think where the rabbit's going to go, you know, and that's how you catch it. And then the gamekeeper said, and now kill it. Um, Cause this is uh, around the time of the war, world war two and a lot of privation. And so they were eating a lot of rabbit. And so Rashad is a young child. His name was Tim. Uh, he killed the rabbit in his hands. And he described an experience very similar to what I described with my organic mescaline. Um, and, and so that part of him was open from a young age. Um, and his mother um, was the heir to some big brewery fortune 
And um, I'm just going to give you a little, little bit of Rashad history so you mm-hmm. know a little bit more who he is. And Rashad's father uh, died when Rashad was four. And so there's a lot of psychology um, in Rashad's makeup around that. But his family line on his father's side went back to uh, the time of uh, Queen Elizabeth I. Sir John Field was like the court astrologer, astronomer. So this esoteric bent, you know, has always been, and that's like the 1500s, has mm-hmm. always been in his line. And so when his father, Rashad's father died, his mother said, um, I want you to change your name um, to her new name. And he refused. And so she wrote him out of the family fortune. He, when he was age 21, he was also, a, I think, a communist, which was quite um, sort of a hipster thing to do back then. And, and she says, you have to um, uh, take on the new family name and renounce you being a communist. Otherwise, I'll write you out of the will. And he refused. So he had this um, uh, willingness to take this kind of spiritual plunge. You know, he he was absolutely an aerialist without a, a net. That's how I would describe Rashad. And whereas uh, Bhagwan, you know, everything was very um, secure, grounded. Um, you know, there there was no drama at all. So so back to the conflict in Rashad. So he's a performer. Um, he sang with Dusty Springfield, and um, and so there's a, a narcissistic quality to him growing up in an aristocratic setting where you'd be seen by the mother at tea time, you know, give us a report, you know, from the nanny. And that's, that's, you know, maybe he got a hug. I don't know. So, and even when he was an infant, he had severe eczema and he was covered in lanolin and put into this muslin bag. So, this um, lack of touch, uh, parental connection, you know, created, um, was a major driver of his psychology. And so his need to be on stage in, in this narcissistic light, you know, um, I think created this a, a conflict for being a, a really steady, attentive teacher um, for, his, for his students. Um, well, th- thank you. Thank you for elucidating that because um, I'm always intrigued by how spiritually powerful people manifest mm-hmm. and how they how they configure their responsibility to show up in the world with other people and whether there's a, a sense of commitment to empowering other people um, to get past the illusion um, that life offers us offers for us to believe in and and so and I know of, uh, personally of other teachers as, as well um, who had strange psychologies shall, shall we say or at least strange experiences non-standard experiences um, and yet they were very they could powerfully manifest in in a 
religious or spiritual context. Mm. So, so, so that's, that, that to me is, is really interesting and how we, how we hold that, whatever our relationship to, to, to a teacher might be is actually kind of uh, central to me in trying to understand how to ourselves show up in the world. So, um, so this the the contrast that you uh, I've, I've you know in your discussion now, I understand just how profoundly the contrast. I mean, you, it comes up in in the two books, Uplift and Rumi Comes to America, but you've you've um, strengthened that contrast for me, mm. and how and how that how that um, affected you. So I'm, I, I I appreciate that. Um, clarity. Yeah, I, I, obviously, I was in crisis, you know, leaving, you know, it's like walking away, you know, from a parent. You know? Right, right, right. So, but I mean, t- tell me more about that, because because I think that's um, a, a, a fearful and fruitful place to be, as your book Uplift would suggest, is a good thing. Uh, so, you know, the, the phrase that I used a lot, you know, quoting uh, the Lone Ranger was, who was that masked man? Um, mm-hmm. Meaning, because of these two sides of Rashad, and, you know, I hadn't grappled with the fact that he's a human being, you know, because we project onto a teacher all sorts of things. And it's only really when you can embrace um, your own humanity and your the degree to which you're um, the universal human predicament that we're all in, that you can have a certain degree of compassion. Um, and in this case for Rashad, but, you know, when I was in my crisis, constant, I was constantly trying to weigh, you know, all the, the spiritual magic that I received from him um, and a lot of transmission at the same time, uh, it's absolutely impossible, you know, to be with. And, you know, if, if you, you know, there's a the whole alcohol side. You, you'd, you'd make him a, a beautiful dinner and slave over it, and he'd push it aside, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, just impossible demands. And, uh, and, and not having my own strength of character, uh, you know, to stand up to that. Because when you're young, you don't. So, um, so this thing that I uh, referred to earlier about um, sort of spiritual stealing—that um, you have to be in the game, you know. And anybody listening to this podcast who's working with a teacher or a tradition, you have to get from it uh, what you need, and so in a sense, put yourself in your own driver's seat, um, and then. Mm-hmm so that you don't get identified, you know, with the drama, you know, a whole other level of spiritual materialism, to use that expression, you know, where you become more identified with the practice, with the tradition, with the paraphernalia, with figures, uh, than you are, and you lose sight of your own question in life, um, you know, which is ultimately, who am I? Can I come into a degree of, of, um, self-actualization and freedom. Um, yeah. 
So the, anyway, so the, the balancing of the two Rashads, who was that masked man? You know, mm-hmm. everybody asked that question in one form or another. Well, thank thank you for that. Uh, so so another uh, question you just mentioned: spiritual materialism, and uh, you know, we've we've uh, our teacher um, Robert Ennis was uh, someone who was committed uh, to. Um, engagement between spiritual traditions. <clears throat> in other words, he would he would have talks with another, te- you know, with one or more other teachers on a stage. He our, our spiritual bookstore, Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California, is an instantiation of his philosophy of valuing that which ought to be valued in all the different traditions. So um, uh, it's uh, uh, getting back to this topic of spiritual materialism. Um, one of the things that I've noticed is that, um, and it doesn't. I'm I'm not uh, talking about uh, your teacher Bhagwan, but um, sometimes it's really easy for people in a non-dual tradition. It has seemed to me, at least, um, to to actually. And, and it's ironic, of course, because not the non-dual teachings strive to disentangle us from what is more obviously spiritual materialism in other traditions with a rich uh, vocabulary mm-hmm. of, of spiritual work uh, and practice. So I think it's really interesting um, that spiritual materialism can operate there too, I, I'm, oh, it, but, but it, just to be clear, it's operating in the sense of uh, essentializing the non-dual as the uh, truer teaching or the more essential teaching. Right. Is in an, in and of itself mm-hmm. a a, right. a dualistic framing, yes. and and it's a subtler form of materialism. It's a very uh, uh, right. wispy kind of materialism, but it is a materialism. Right. But, but my, so my question, my, my question to you is, I wonder if you've reflected on the fact that the, the history you've just described for us of huge drama and no drama on, on either side um, may have, um, helped you not be tempted to spiritual materialism in the non-dual side of things. Does that make, does that question make sense to you? Uh, I, I think it's really the, the question of the, of the teacher, um, Bhagwan, he has virtually no frame around the teaching. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the point of it from the outside, looking really boring. Um. <laughs> well, it might it might be boring <laughs> to to a person to someone who's interested in drama. Right, that would be boring, right? Even somebody who's looking for a little heart uplift, you know, uh-huh. it looks sort of deadly. You right. know, half the time, half the people are sort of nodding out, you know, mm-hmm. and you're supposed to be putting your attention into this, you know, mythical eye. Where is it? How do I do that? And um, so it's really like going to the Grand Canyon and, and watching, you know, the Colorado River carve a canyon. You know, there's not much going on. <laughs> uh, 
I guess there's not even a flood, huh? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I come back in 50,000 years and see, you know, if anything's happened. <laughs> but is that, is that a, in, in a sense, for your own journey, um, you did up drama pretty well uh, in a sense that you, you were, uh, you had a, a um, backstage pass to the drama making and the spiritual project. And in a sense, I guess it might be to Rob's point, it might be easier to appreciate a non-dual kind of frameless path after that, because, uh, Maybe I, I and you tell me, but it's like uh, there isn't a sense of missing out on something now because uh, you had, I mean, you've had both extremes. Uh, so I would put it a little differently that my time as a Sufi, um, and maybe it isn't over, uh, completely informs my non-dual time. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. the 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 frame of that, particularly. And maybe this is a place we can go into one of my favorite topics. Um, I talk about the octave, okay? And you mm-hmm. guys have a fourth-way background, so that rings yeah. a bell. And so being with Rashad, um, Rashad was a man of m- many hats. Uh, he was a performer. He was a healer. He was a geomancer. People know what that is. Uh, it's like a feng shui kind of thing. And um, <clears throat> he was an author. And so, and all of those uh, were within the frame of the octave. And for the listeners who don't know what we're talking about, you know, there's the musical octave that we're all familiar with, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si, do. And in a musical octave, the vibration, you know, if, if do is at a thousand and you get to the next do, it's at 2000. So it's a doubling and you hear it. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, si. Do. So, if, you know, you're waiting for that. Um, and so there, uh, there's, a, there's a, it's a deep esoteric science around the octave. And, and Rashad embraced the octave in all of his teachings um, in the sense that we were moving um, through the octave we're, we are getting together and going through the drama for the purpose of raising the energy. And the octave, particularly at the MIFA interval, uh, that it invites, they would say, a shock, an outside force. And where you are forced to let go of everything that you brought into this moment in order to be lifted into the next. And so, um, and having that, um, those guideposts, of the octave to guide me through um, the trials and tribulations of life have been really, really important. And I'm just going to throw in an anecdote that's central um, to my spiritual work is nine years ago, um, my uh, I have a graphic design marketing business. And nine years ago, my younger business partner <clears throat> announced that he was leaving the business and also taking the clients. And I was age 63, an unemployable age, and um, and had four mortgages. And all of a sudden, here I am left high and dry uh, with no income, no business, no nothing. We also had a lot of debt. Uh, so uh, I went, we went through all the 
prowls around that. And so the afternoon that I went to the bank, closed down the business, moved money around, tried to pay things off. And then I had to take my wife, Karen, to see uh, a practitioner immediately after that. I'm racing from the bank to get home. I walk into the kitchen and she's sort of um, not very together. She was trying to make me a sandwich and the lettuce was on the floor. I didn't know what was going on. And so I said, get in the car. We drive to Buckhead to this medical office building. We get in this creaky old elevator, clickety, 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 clickety. There's this beautiful woman in the elevator with us. And all of a sudden, we come to the top floor. The doors squeak open, and Karen collapses into my arms. I desperately hold on to her. I scream to the woman, go down the hall, get the doctor. you know. And he announces, you need to get to Piedmont Hospital right away. Uh, where they discover that she has a brain tumor. So I went from losing the business and having a wife with seven months to live in the same afternoon. Now, um, so what do you do with something like that? So obviously you freak out. But um, so my my clever brain is, you know, just trying to, um, strategize, you know, how are we going to do this? What's going to happen? But the knowledge of the octave, where you've over decades have seen how these crises um, are part of a, of a larger story that you've been given. And the fact that it was not one hammer blow, but two, which is so um, ridiculous in a way. You know, it would be thrown out of a uh, out of a screen entry, <laughs> a screenplay. You know, if that was in a screenplay, it would be immediately uh, rejected as being ridiculous. You know, unless it was a comedy. And so, but seeing that said, okay, this is a setup, um, and that being thrown into that turbulence and having uh, enough experiences of being in the turbulence. It's like uh, going through a wave when, you know, if you don't go through it correctly, you're thrown into turbulence. You know, you may get a mouthful of sand and, and knowing that you go through the turbulence and then you can rise to the surface again. And so it, it created a feeling of trust and for Karen as well um, that, um even though she had seven months to live, nine years later, here she is sitting at my side. So um, so that framework of being in the drama of the Rashad school, where there is always a crisis. Um, and if there wasn't a crisis, he'd create a crisis. Mm-hmm. You know, in one of his schools in um, it's a, a residential retreat, and they had 80 people on this um, in Valbella, Switzerland. And he had told the organizers when they asked, what kind of food would you like? He just said, oh, just the natural food. And he thought natural meaning, you know, just the cuisine to the area, you know? And so they went and got a macrobiotic cook, <laughs> which horrified him. He said, we can't have this person with all their concepts in the food. So the day that the thing was going to start, he fired the cook and uh, and the woman who took over the kitchen was an artist. <laughs> I 
had no experience cooking for 80 people. So that's the kind of crisis and drama that he would create, um, you know. And was that divinely inspired? Was that just his mercurial nature? You know, who was that masked man? Can't answer that question. Um, so... Or you could say, that, or you could say they were both true simultaneously. There you go. That is true. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, cer- certainly the case with uh, teachers with strong personalities that uh, they will say that in awakening, in one form or another, the warts get bigger, <laughs> and they don't they don't go away. It's a, it's not it, it is not necessarily about. Uh, harmonizing the uh, personality in human terms, but uh, uh, attaining a certain kind of crystallization of a an awareness that's beyond that. And then the warts become these tools or become these expressions of that teaching. So like with Rashad, to say he's narcissistic is probably accurate in one sense, but it was a narcissism in service of something. Mm. Uh, whereas, at least we hope. Well, well, we hope. I mean, that's that's. I think that's the question. Uh, but um, you know, our teacher's teacher was in a similar kind of category of uh, big drama and um, and and uh, yeah, I, 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 it's hard to say what, what did they intend. And I I, I absolutely agree with your uh, assessment that um, as a student, your responsibility is to get what you can from that. Mm. And and to you're responsible for your own boundaries within that, mm. and that's very tricky because too much boundary is too much safety, and uh, no boundary is sort of loss of uh, uh, or complete identification. So it feels like it's on a razor's edge to uh, negotiate that kind of uh, uh, ongoing crisis. Uh, you know, to keep your bearings. Um you know, is, is the challenge because you don't want to be so, um, uh, protective and defensive that you can't allow yourself to be changed and transformed by it. And, and, and if you're of that nature, you're going to be bounced out. So there is a, a, a razor's edge there. Um, you know, because there's a certain point when you're strapped into the seat on the roller coaster, you don't get a, a choice of, of what the ride's going to be. So that, that was the case, you know, but to be present during the roller coaster, you know, that's a, that's a different question. So, 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 so that invites the question in my mind um, to, um, it's sort of another way of a- asking the same question I asked you earlier, which was, um, um, was, was the drama um, around Rashad um, an invitation to be present no matter what's happening? And is that not a more a, a sim- simply a different manifestation, perhaps, of um, being present as uh, Bhagwan teaches you? So when you're preparing you know, food for 40, 50 people, you know, the food has to get onto the table, you know, at 1 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, and how it gets there, you know, it can be a complete emotional crisis or it can be a completely attentive and learning from this 
that if I just stay in the breath, that you'll grab the right thing in the right sequence and it'll all unfold beautifully. And so the purpose of the school is the latter. Um, but it doesn't mean that there won't be the former, you know. So. Well, I don't think they're separable, actually, um, uh, ultimately. But, um, but you know, um, um, the non-dual uh, side of things, as opposed to the dramatic side of things, starts from a different place, kind of. Mm-hmm. Or, or would you agree with that? Yeah, you know, going back to uh, the spiritual materialism of non-dual, mm-hmm. um, it, it's hard for me to f- separate that out because it's become a thing in its own right, which is ridiculous in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, it is ridiculous well, and very and very human. Yeah, so let, let me, I'll ask a, a different question that's sort of related to this, this uh, exploration, and that's that the, the Sufic path, uh, is very relational and very focused on the heart. And, uh, the, the heart is like a, you know, central thing in, 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 in its expression and teaching, as I understand it. And, uh, the non-dual, uh, kind of self-inquiry path, I wouldn't say it's exclusive of the heart, but it's, a, it's dealing with, uh, uh, a different question is in, mm-hmm. in a way the awareness of awareness or the uh the uh this this more foundational quality of i-ness or beingness that's uh, always present so i'm interested and this this is partly you know, reflects my own exploration in different traditions is how you find the heart-centered path um the same or different from this more, let's say, instead of calling it non-dual, let's just call it a frameless, frameless inquiry about the self. And do they, for you, are they ultimately one and the same, or is there something different in the uh, relational aspects of the heart in the world from this uh, frameless kind of inquiry about the self in the world? Mm-hmm. Um you know, obviously, all the centers have to become open in our life. Right. And, um, you know, it's just like taking remedies, you know. Today, I need this one. Tomorrow, I'll need that one. And the fact that I was in this um, Sufi school, you know, as a whirling dervish, you know, with everything that that, um, you know, conjures up. And then moving to the world of Bhagwan, where we just sit in my den in a circle of chairs, you know, for five hours, <laughs> you know, just paying attention to our sense of self, you know, it, it's, it's wildly uh, different ends of the spectrum from an experience point of view. And, but at the same time, you know, one is indeed opening the heart. You can't turn unless you're in your, centered in your heart. Otherwise, you'll get dizzy. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, all of the uh, paraphernalia, spiritual paraphernalia around being a Mevlevi Sufi, you know, with the robes and the this and the Rumi and the poetry, um, that um, – and you're you're creating this feeling all the time, you know? the rose water on the walls, you know, we're constantly creating a feeling. And Rashad was a master at opening people's hearts. 
to the point that there'd be floods of tears and they'd send someone up to take, you know, a, a, a bath with oils after this would happen. You know, it's just this feeling, 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 this beautiful feeling that people could release whatever pain, you know, um, that they had come into their spiritual search with. And, and then also just strip all that away. So uh, ultimately, if we're going to really walk this razor's edge of who am I, you know, the experience of being a human being needs to be part of our question, become the question, you know, and what's beyond that. So, um, you know, I think each person needs to sort of trust um, their own spiritual guidance system. And, and the fact that we have such a thing, you know, when I had this experience of losing the business and almost losing my wife, and like I tried to be very clever and, you know, uh, get some things going from a financial point of view and all this. And ultimately, I realized that I had been just completely checkmated everywhere I looked on the, on the board. You know, I was locked and blocked. And it's a, okay. Bruce, with all your knowledge and your cleverness, you know, you finally got the ultimate touche from the universe. <laughs> There's no way out of this. And um, and that's when I just really, you know, all the times I've ever prayed in my life, it was never a real prayer where you really let go really into the whirlpool of possibility. I don't know what it's going to look like when I come out of this. And so that... That was my path. I do not recommend it to anybody to have such a situation, but but that was my path. And I would have never imagined, because I came from a fairly privileged, um, middle-class suburban background in Highland Park, Illinois, and the last thing I'd ever expect would be to see myself, you know, going through this Sufi Mevlevi world and then, you know, um, losing a business, almost losing a wife, you know, I never expected that I would be facing these kind of traumas because I would carefully design my life not to have things like that. And so, um, so I'm a big believer that um, you, you don't have to find a path with a name uh, apart from the experience that you're given and in, and this is really if if I was to say I would love people to walk away with one thing, it is to learn to be uh, attentive to what's being given to you. That everything that we need is being given to us if we're paying attention. You know, and, and well, that, that's a big if, though. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and, and this is something I learned from Bhagwan. Um, that he lives in a frictionless um, place. You know, mm-hmm. you know, here's this guy. If you were at an airport and you saw him, you wouldn't notice him for a second. But uh, he actually lives in a deep, deep place of total trust. Um, that if you serve him a, a you know a burnt meal, whatever it is, you know, this is what's happening, and. Um, and he uh, adjusts and responds to whatever's in the moment with a kind of freedom that is uncanny. You know, he's telling me the other day, um, I was having some terrible experience and I called him up 
And <clears throat> he was telling me that he, he started swimming in the lake of Zurich in the middle of the winter. <laughs> and also I should say, okay, you know, I can just see that now, that he is wanting to constantly explore those edges, you know, that as much as he's mastered, here's another one. Um, so uh, there's, there's a lot to, to learn from that. Well, you remind me of a story uh, that uh, I've heard that the, uh, the spiritual uh, French spiritual teacher Arnaud Desjardins, um, he's 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 passed on now. Whatever it's been, five or five years, years ago, something yeah. like that. Anyway, um, a few years before that, he had uh, some kind of like something like a heart attack. I, I don't remember the exact diagnosis. But he's being taken to the hospital, and um, the uh, um, um, there's a there's a moment. You know, it's it's it all seems very serious and decidedly, possibly approaching the the end. And he suddenly realizes, oh, it's all okay, and my spiritual practice didn't desert me at this moment or I didn't desert it at this moment. And it's like, um, you know, many formulations of spiritual practice use that sort of uh, near ultimacy as a a, uh, a measure Mm. of of how, um, not just of how proficient a, a, a practitioner one is, but also of how the the practice, the tradition, the inquiry pervasively infuses in one's life. Mm. And that's, um, that's to me a, um, a, an indication of something important. So you... You um, went through decades of living in this world of drama, as you've just described, um, around Rashad. And and then you had this incredibly, um, virtually unbelievably bad day um, with your business and your wife's health. And... Um, and just being present to it in the way that you were just describing that Bhagwan um, apparently is proficient at being present to it is the, uh, it seems to me, the demonstration of something. And you're, and you described that your, you know, your mind is, 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 is flailing around, but, but I, I'm asking you, wasn't it actually your capacity to be present to all that was going on? Really, the the, um, the important element here. Uh, well, it's not to discount the fact that life is putting a gun to your head in the moment. Okay, mm-hmm. because you're not prepared for this, and, and so okay. and, and so that's the nature of moving through any crisis. You know, um, you know, moving through one of these extreme intervals with the outside shock of the octave. Um, so, um, but to actually be aware and awake to what's going on is where you get the clues that everything's going to be okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I actually 
sent a email to Bhagwan, who was in India at the time when Karen was undergoing brain surgery. And somehow, you know, in the middle of the mountains where he has this little place outside of Mumbai, he managed to get the email and he just poked, you know, from his little tiny phone, tell Karen everything will be okay. And uh, and that was like huge for me. And, you know, like a year or two later, I told Bhagwan, oh, my God, that was so important to me. And he says, I told you that? <laughs> <laughs> So, um, you know, so, uh, you know, you know, here we are talking about trust and, um, and trusting that everything's going to be okay, uh, is not necessarily going to be okay the way you expect, you know? Yeah. Well, I, Rob mentioned Arno Desjardins, one of his phrases and the title of one of his books is saying yes to life. Mm. And just the ability, and in the story Rob was telling, you know, part of it is as he's in the ho- in the stretcher in the in the ambulance going to the hospital, he's saying to himself, "Yes, yes, yes." <laughs> and, and and I think you know when I look at the, your book Uplift, and then and there's a lot of description about crisis and crisis, the transformative potential of crisis. It's it, it really. Another way of saying that is being able to say yes is is the knowing that out of this will come something that that this isn't this isn't here to destroy me. It's just it's mm-hmm. something something life will provide something out of this. So so I use the uh, the metaphor of waves a lot. Okay, and if you've ever been a surfer or even somebody who goes into the ocean, and you have all these breakers coming in. And somehow or another, you have to get through the breaker, okay? And if you're a surfer, you've got, in addition to the waves, you're carrying this big board that has to you and the board have to get through the breaker. And so if you have this surfboard and you try to, you can't obviously can't plow your way through the breaker holding onto a surfboard. So um, you actually have to, uh, face the wave head on. Okay. You still have this wall of water coming toward you. So one of the ways that you get through the breaker on the surfboard, because you want to go out to where the surfing is out beyond the breakers, uh, is that you push up. Imagine doing a push up on the board so that this wall of water can, can move through you, you know, um, wash over the board and your body. And so if you think of this horrible, terrible wave with all this, you know, turbulence and power it's just energy and these events that are happening in our life which are terrible and horrible they're also just energy it's an energetic disturbance that is taking the form of life and one of the things about taking the surfboard through the wave if you're not facing it head on if you're like at an angle it'll just flip you over and 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 dump you into the surf so um so it's not to say that you're going to get through the wave uh, without being dump, um, dumped, <laughs> you know. And if you've been in the ocean many times, you found yourself, you know, you know, with a mouthful of sand and scraped up shoulder or whatever from the from the wave. So learning to uh, get to go through the wave uh, requires a certain kind of trust that this wave isn't going to kill you. You've seen waves before. You know you can get through it. 
And to face it head on, um, I asked Karen, okay, I'm going to read you these instructions from the surfing manual. Tell me if this is what you did uh, when you had this prognosis. And she described it exactly, um, that that was the case, that, um, that, you know, to have this trust inside herself that uh, you have been given what uh, you need to get through it. Um, and that, and that each thing that I will need, like successive waves, you know, I will embrace them. And some of them, you know, someone says, Oh, you need to do coffee enemas. And that someone else, that person says, that's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> so, um, so it is a process of, you know, of, of getting through these waves. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that actually about an uplift, the story of, um, Karen's response to, the prognosis where people would have all of these uh, suggestions and rather than what I think many people do in that, in those situations, which is to get angry or, you know, feel, you know, like, what are you doing? Just, you know, let me deal with this in my way. She would say, Oh yeah. Okay. I'll do this until the next person said, no, you shouldn't do this. You should do this. And she'd stop that one and do the next one. But that, that that's a trust like that the universe isn't this enemy that I have to defend against, but I'm getting messages that I need uh, to take the next step. Mm. And yet I don't hold on to any one of them. I just listen and keep listening. Mm. And I, and that was a very nice uh, allegory. uh, I mean, allegory in reality of uh, something she did, but something we all can do in various ways. Mm. So the the subtitle of the book is um, how to harness uh, the hidden engine of continuous renewal, okay, which is a mouthful. But this idea of continuous renewal, you know, obviously our body has the capacity, you know, to repair DNA. We can heal from a cold. You know, there's this whole cycle of with the mitochondria producing ATP, and 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 so we're constantly. Um, in a, a restoration cycle, we go to bed at night, and there's a flushing of all this accumulation from the day. And so continuous renewal, uh, to me, is, is the art of living. Um, and, the, and we're not taught um, that life uh, offers these kind of springboards. You know, it's like if you skip a rock on the surface, you know, to make the rock skip, it has to hit it just at the right angle. Otherwise, it will just get sunk down to the bottom. And so this idea of continuous renewal, people talk about reinventing themselves or I'm having my 2.0. Um, so that capacity uh, is there if we can, you know, like the rock hit the water at the right angle or face the wave uh, head on uh, without fear. And... Um, and, and, and being attentive to all the the cues and clues which are there. So, um, you know, I've always been enamored by glider pilots. Um, that here you have something that if you drop the glider into a vacuum, it would just plummet to earth and crash, and the pilot would be dead. But, yes, this uh, glider uh, craft is falling to earth um, on a cushion of air, but the pilot also has this ability to be on the lookout for cumulus clouds 
or a certain field that has been plowed where there might be heat rising. And so they're constantly on the lookout for thermals. And so this thermal, that all of a sudden you can catch a thermal in this glider and start spiraling back up, you know, you were down at, you know, a thousand feet and take it back up to 5,000 feet or something. And so life is like that, you know, to be on the lookout for the next thermal that we can ride again. <laughs> well, that's a, that um, is an important part of life for, for sure. But I'm also um, thinking that um, what Bhagwan teaches is not looking for thermals but it's being present to whatever atmosphere you happen to <laughs> find yourself in. And that that capacity for presence matters. Uh, you know, when my, my, my mother's uh, uh, diagnosis with cancer and uh, death less than two months later um, had this, had this feature of, her whole, everyone in her family had died of cancer before her mother, her aunts, her siblings. And finally, when she had her diagnosis, I, I was at the, do, at the doctor's uh, office with my father when she received the, that, that you know, metastatic uh, diagnosis. And, and, it, and she wailed. She wailed in this horrendous way. But then, over that successive two months, she suddenly somehow just manifested presence mm. in a way that was um, at first surprising to me mm. because because I'd seen I, I knew how how fearful she was of cancer all her, all her life and um, she'd even survived a bout of it earlier twenty five years earlier in her life but um, but that um, that capacity to be present to what is really uh, struck me as um, um, even though the result was what she feared, she could be with it without any rejection of it mm -hmm. in those in those final two months. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, along the way, it's good to have. Um, um, you know, as, as you, as you describe, it's good, it's good to have a capacity to tune into that ability to adapt creatively, mm -hmm. your continuous renewal phrase, you know, so, no, no, no doubt about that. But she also, you know, uh, uh, my mother also exemplified, I think, um, this feature of, of Bhagwan's teaching. Which is to be present, mm -hmm. but but couldn't you also say that she caught a thermal? Same as well. I'm not sure <laughs> what what would the thermal be in well, this in this particular in that, case, in that case. It would be a thermal to take you to a uh, a more tran transcendent uh, perspective. Okay, but but. I don't think she was looking for that, as far as I know. That's the that that would be the difference. At least I never I never heard her articulate that she was doing that. But somehow, she, having gone through the worst experience that she feared above all others, um, and and I guess this would be an example of your facing because she she clearly decided to face 
Not everyone, not everyone in similar circumstances would face um, the diagnosis in, in the way she did uh, to be present to it. She could be bitterly complaining about mm-hmm. the unfairness of life or something like that. So I guess you and Stuart have a point that, that she did face the wave directly. Yeah, I, I think there's there's always a thermal, you know, there is, I think that is who we are intrinsically. Okay. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Well, I I, I think I, we have to be present to the time, and okay. uh, we have about five minutes left. So, I, that, that's actually a great note to draw to a conclusion. But I wanted just to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find out more about uh, your current work and and uh, and how to get a hold of Uplift and Rumi Comes to America, your two books we've been discussing. And there's there's also a, a third book. Um, called fortune which describes mm-hmm. the whole experience of losing the business and almost the wife um i said i don't know what to do so i'll just write down every day what's happening so that was my process of getting finding the thermal so uh i have a little website called i thou.com i-t-h-o-u like i and thou mm-hmm. um where the books are and you can contact me through that and um i also do uh, uh, marketing and media and brand strategy. So you can find me for that as well. And uh, I'm very excited, you know, having gotten through uh, my uh, virgin podcasting <laughs> today. <laughs> you mean you, you survived? I survived. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> can I share one little thing that's going to make you uh, laugh? Sure, of course. Uh, but, um, so, so you you sent me that email saying, "Oh my God, you um, put sort of a fractured portrayal of, of Rashad as a human being in the book." Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, "Well, I need to read this book again because I hadn't picked it up in four or five years." And mm-hmm. uh, so I read the book, and and I was actually horrified. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. <laughs> well, you see, I read, I read, I read that book first. The Rumi comes to America, and and really, it didn't sit well with me. All right, so, had, so, so go ahead. And reading Uplift contextualized the material in that book. Um, I mean, that was the the later book that you wrote, as I understand, Uplift yes. after Rumi comes to America. So then I could I could I could hold um, the stuff. In Rumi comes to America that I found problematic yeah. in a different light. So obviously I was trying to integrate my life experience by writing the book. And also no one has ever written about Rashad or Suleiman Dede or any of this. So I felt I had a duty, you know, to right. put it all in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then when I read it uh, recently, uh, and I said, Oh my God, what a horror show um, that I didn't need all that. So really from a, a literary point of view, I said, I'm going to fix this book. So I took out two chapters, organized some things, and there's a... Um, a new a, version. <laughs> okay. A third edition okay. dedicated to you. Oh. <laughs> R- R- Ruby the Renewal. <laughs> it just went, well, online, went online yesterday. Okay. Well, well, thank you for, for <laughs> informing me of that. I, I am honored and, uh, um, and I'm grateful that we could have this conversation today. All right. Yeah. Well, thank we, as a, uh, we, uh, 
we appreciate our, our mutual friend Daphne uh, uh, connected us, and uh, we have a, a great deal of respect for her. And uh, right. so it's been a, a great conversation, and uh, look forward to uh, future such discussions. All right. Thank you, Barrett. Thank you. All right. Best, best to you and Karen. Thank you. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Bruce Miller about his latest book, Uplift, How to Harness the Hidden Engine of Continuous Renewal, published this year by Miller E-Media. In Uplift, Bruce describes his early spiritual search in the 1970s and how that led him to English author, performer, and teacher Rashad Field and his subsequent long-term relationship with Dr. Bhagwan Awatramani. This journey, as well as a number of personal life challenges along the way, are told in the context of the principle of the octave and the enneagram based on the teachings of G.I. Gurdjieff and P.D. Ospinsky. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.